Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. So today we're in Romans chapter 14. In the series, we're in the book of Romans, and the book of Romans was written as a letter from the Apostle Paul uh, to the church at Rome, and the church at Rome was deeply divided over, um, well, ethnic lines in some ways. Uh, Some ways it was simply uh, preferences, and Paul was trying to bring unity to a deeply divided church. Uh, The emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, and five years later, they were allowed to come back, and when they did, the Roman church looked dramatically different than it had before they left, and they were unhappy. They weren't thrilled about this, and so there's conflict in the church, and Paul is writing to the Roman church to bring unity because he understood the strategic value of the Roman church as the church was looking to expand westward into Europe further, and And so he understood, hey, a healthy church is vital for the greater good of the kingdom of God. And I would say the same thing is true today. A healthy church is vital for the greater good of the kingdom of God. And Paul was saying unity is really important. And these are some central ideas we see, but the theme throughout the book of of Romans is this, that God judges sin but manifests mercy through Jesus. And you've heard that every weekend that we've preached this series, and hopefully you will get that drilled into your brain. You're going to be um, talking about that in your sleep, God, judge sin, but manifest mercy. You're going to have it locked in at that point. Um, And this is what we see, especially in the first three chapters, but throughout the book of Romans, we see this idea that, that God's righteousness in our life transforms us. It creates a new way of living for us that ultimately brings unity to divided churches. Um, when we talk about God's righteousness, just as, a, <clears throat> as a, a standing definition for this conversation is that God always does what's right and he is faithful to keep his promise. God always does what is right because he's righteous. He always does what is right. <laughs> he always does what's right even if your candidate did not win on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or whenever they finish counting, even if your candidate didn't win, God is still good. Can, can we agree on that, that God is good no matter what? Now, last week, we spent a lot of time talking about politics and uh, our response to politics and how we should engage as believers in politics um, and I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. Go back and watch the video. I think it'll be helpful. Um, I, I, we did not plan this. I had a number of people ask, did you plan to preach that that way? And I said, I did not at all. Uh, that is, they, somebody asked me, they said, was that planned? And I said, not by me. And they said, well, who planned it? And I was like, apparently the Holy Spirit did because it wasn't me. Um, and so just so you know, I wasn't trying to ambush you guys last week when we did that, but that's just how it worked out. So that was Romans 13. We talk about uh, submitting to earthly authority in the first half of Romans 13. and In the second half of Romans 13, we talk about what does it mean to love people, even loving our enemies? What does that look like? Um, and, and then we transition to Romans 14. So remember, what he's, remember the context. Paul's writing to a divided church. He's writing to Jewish and Gentile believers trying to bring unity to the body. And he says this in Romans 14, 1. Accept other believers who are weak in the faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. He says, accept those who are weak 
in the faith. Now, let me start with this word. The word weak in the Greek is a a word, it's astheneo, and astheneo means what you would think it means, to be weak or feeble or sick. Typically in scripture, it's translated as the word sick. And this is a strong word for Paul to use. Um, he He was not mincing words when he said, there were weak believers in the church. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. Um, if, if Paul was talking to mature believers, if he said, hey, if there are immature believers there, uh, take care of them. Most people assume they're mature, whether they're mature or not. Even if they're immature, sometimes those are the ones who believe they're the most mature. Sometimes the people who are the weakest think they're the, actually the strongest in their faith and in their walk with Christ. But, but Paul uses this word specifically. He says, if you're sick, if you're weak in the faith, how many of you know if you're sick, uh, your immune system is dropped. You are less able to fight off um, uh, illness and sickness and infection and you are, you are compromised, you're vulnerable. And this is the case when we are weak in our faith, we are vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And the problem is many times we don't recognize our own weakness. And so Paul is a master of this when he says, hey, those of you that are strong, accept the weak because everybody thinks they're strong. And he says, so if you think you're strong, accept those that are weak. The word accept here is interesting because um, it's a Greek word, proslumbano. And proslumbano means this, uh, to take in, and there's a couple definitions I really like of this in the, in the different contexts, but to take as one's companion. How many of you know if you have to take a companion with you on a trip, you, you probably want to like them, don't you? If you're doing like, a, you know, a 17-hour flight to Greece, for instance, if, if you don't like them, uh, it's going to be a long flight, right? Thankfully, our team that went to Greece, they liked each other, and they might not have liked each other at the end of the trip, but they liked each other at the beginning of the trip at least, right? But if you're going on a journey with somebody, you want to like them and be in a relationship with them. So it, it, let me differentiate this word with the way we use it in our culture. In our culture, when we say accept, um, we're talking about something different than what the Greek word proslumbano means. Um, when we talk about acceptance, we are talking about agreement. That if you accept me, you have to agree with everything I do and everything I believe. And if you don't, then you don't really accept me. This is where we as a church get into trouble with our world at times because people will come to our church and they'll go, man, this is the greatest church ever. And we're like, thanks so much. And then we come into conflict because we're like, hey, the word of God says maybe you shouldn't be living this way. And their, their response many times is, well, who are you to judge? You need to accept me the way I am. God accepts me the way I am. And it's like, well, that's not exactly what that means. That you don't have to change your life to be accepted by God. Like God accepts us, but in our world, we just think that means agreement. Like, hey, if you don't agree with everything about me, you don't accept me. And that's just not the case. Because the truth is, uh, there are lots of people I disagree with that I still love. Um, even in my house, there's times we can't agree on things. It doesn't mean I stop loving my family, right? Especially as my girls are getting older and they're more able to make choices for themselves. I don't agree with everything they do, but I still love them. 
And so there's this idea in our culture that says acceptance means total agreement, and that's false. You can love somebody really well without agreeing with everything they do or believe in. So this word in the Greek, it means to take or receive into one's home. And the implication there is that you're gonna receive them with kindness. And it means to, to grant access to one's heart, as in friendship. So we're not only supposed to accept those who are weak, but those who are strong in the faith should open our hearts willingly to love those who we don't agree with. And those who say stupid things sometimes. Because we don't, because we're strong. But those weak people say stupid things sometimes, don't they? <laughs> weak people. Why? But we all think we're strong. But the reality is we're not nearly as strong as we think we are. And Paul lays out this groundwork for us. And he says, here's what you do. You love them in spite of some of the things they believe. And here's the thing. Don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Do you know what he's saying? Don't argue about stupid things that don't matter. When I talk to churches, um, I have the, the honor of being able to go to churches and help coach them and help counsel them through some difficulties. And the churches that I've seen that are in steep decline are masters at arguing over things that don't matter. Some of you have been parts of churches uh, that were good at this. See, Paul was talking to the, the Roman church saying, don't argue about things that don't matter. Things like your dietary restrictions or you know, some of these things, we'll get into that in a minute. But, but churches today do the same thing. We argue about things that don't matter. There are churches in our community, there are churches in our region that have split over things like, um, it's time to put new carpet in the auditorium. What color carpet are we gonna put in? I think gray, I think red. That can't be right. And then there's division. And you go, well, Mel, that doesn't happen. It happens. There's division in the church over, um, Mel, the ideal temperature for worship is 75. And someone else will say, no, the ideal temperature for worship is 65. And I will say, I tend to go to the colder. I want it as cold as possible. I want us hanging meat in this room, right? <laughs> That's... How, you can bring a shawl or a blanket if you want. I'm cool with that. But I want it cold in this room. And, and we make jokes. That kind of stuff drives people out. Like, I can't never go to a church that's worship style. I could never go to a church that doesn't have a pipe organ. Don't they know that Jesus had pipe organs when he worshiped? People on the other end can be the same way. I would never go to a church with a pipe organ. They're all stuck in the past and none of this stuff matters. We start arguing over things that don't matter and Paul is saying right at the start of chapter 14, make sure that we don't argue and fight over things that don't really matter that much. He goes on to say in verse two, for instance, he lays it out for us. One person believes it's right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, 
they will stand and receive his approval. Uh, I love what Paul says here at the end of this passage. He says, he says, who are you to judge someone else's servants? He says, you don't know what's going on in their house. You don't know what's going on in their culture. So who are you to judge them? Have you ever been in public somewhere and you saw a child acting in a way that is contrary to the way that you would like them to act or maybe your kids acted? And your first response is to go, where is that parent? Is the parent gonna take care of this or do I need to take care of this, right? There's a response in us, this visceral response of is somebody gonna do something about this child? And this is the same context for us that Paul would say, hey, why don't you take care of your child? And here's what he's saying to the Roman believers. He's saying, you take care of your house. You take care of your problems before you try to solve somebody else's problems. You take care of yourself before you try to fix somebody else. And he says here, he's talking about the dietary things. Uh, Some people don't eat meat, some people do. Some people love bacon, and bacon is evidence of God's love for humanity. I'm I'm sure of that. Every time I eat bacon, I'm like, thank you, Jesus, you are good, right? I don't know how it is that I can eat pork and makes me worship this Jewish man so much, but it's good. But here's what Paul says, and we've taken the same approach. Um, So back, let me stir up some good feelings and emotions. Back in COVID days, when churches were closing and masks and no masks, and what do we do? And and some of you are already responding, just stop, calm down, we're good. But here's what we did. Like the approach we took was to say, here's what we're gonna do, but if your church does something different, we're cool with that. You've gotta manage your church well. You've got to manage your church the way you feel like God is leading you to do it. And we're going to do what God's called us to do or what we feel like God is leading us to do. And we're not going to judge you for doing something different because this is an issue that is, it's not primary, it's secondary. Now, primary issues, we would fight over. But, but secondary issues, you, you do what you need to do, we're going to do what we need to do. And this is what Paul is saying we should do as a family, in our house, in our homes, as individuals, that we should manage ourselves well and let others do what they're going to do. He says in verse five, in the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should, uh, you should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. <clears throat> so some people think Saturday is the holy day. This is the Sabbath. And some people say Sunday is the Sabbath. Even in our culture today, um, the, the Seventh-day Adventist church in our community, they worship on Saturday. Um, and that's fine. Um, it's not a big deal. But we have Saturday services. Is Saturday less holy than Sunday? No. So for us, we say uh, the Sabbath is more about you putting God first on a specific day and resting in God than it is about which day you go to church. In fact, what we see in the New Testament is that, um, that we see Jesus is our Sabbath. And, and Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. So it is, to me, it's less important about which specific day we worship, but some people get really hung up on that. And what Paul's saying is that's secondary. We shouldn't fight over this kind of stuff. These are the kind of things that we should agree to disagree on. But yet, the Roman church was fighting over it. He says this in verse six, those who worship on the Lord, uh, worship the Lord on a special day, do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord. 
since they give thanks to God before eating. Those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we do not live for ourselves or die for ourselves. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, we have to start with the assumption that if somebody chooses to have church on Saturday instead of Sunday, they're not evil. We have to start with the assumption that they are intending to worship God and to honor God in that. If somebody chooses not to eat meat, they're not weak, they're choosing to honor God in that. If somebody chooses to eat meat and you don't, they're not weak, they're choosing to honor God in that. That's the foundation we start with when we're making assumptions about the people around us. We begin with the best in mind, not the worst in mind. Because typically in our world, we start with the worst. Well, they're different than me, they're bad. Oh, they, they think differently, they're evil. And Paul says, that's not the way it should be in the church. In the church, we should start with the best assumptions instead of the worst assumptions. See, many Christians have this false notion that, that extreme legalism shows a strong faith. That I'm, I'm strong in my faith if I'm very legalistic. And we wouldn't call it legalism. We would say we're pious, we're devoted, we're holy, whatever it is. But Paul actually contradicts this in Colossians chapter two. In Colossians chapter two, he's writing to the church in Colossae and he says this in verse 18, he says, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying that they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud. He's saying there's some people who seem very pious. They say the right things. They seem to behave the right way, but they're not pious. They're actually evil because they're proud. He says they have uh, they're not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. Then he says this in verse 20, you have died with Christ, and he set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, and he's speaking specifically to uh, the, the Jewish laws. And he says, such rules were mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. This is hardcore. He's being very direct. And he's saying the rules that have been so important to the Jewish people for thousands of years, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These regulations, he says, are no longer necessary. And you go, well, Mel, how do we differentiate between what is necessary and what's not necessary? And, and what we see in the Old Testament is there were over 600 laws for the Jewish nation, 613, and they had to do with all kinds of things. Have you ever, have you ever seen a video on on um, the internet, or maybe you've had a conversation with somebody where they have said something like this. Well, you Christians say homosexuality is wrong, but do you pay attention to the other verses? Like don't braid certain, um, certain fabrics together or don't mix certain foods or do you, you don't even follow that stuff. You don't pay attention to the parts where it, it, it tells women not to dress in certain ways. You don't even pay attention to that. So you pick and choose. And so they say, by virtue of us picking and choosing which laws we will follow, all of it is false because, because we're hypocritical. And, and let me just help you. There's a specific video I've seen where this young lady 
um, she is doing this. She's reading a verse and going, well, what about this? And what about this? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no clue. And, and here's the thing. In the Old Testament, generally speaking, there were two types of laws. There were moral laws and there were ceremonial laws. And moral laws were <clears throat> um, weightier than ceremonial law. Moral law had to do with the character and nature of God. Um, moral law, moral law does not re reveal God to us, but what we see in the Old Testament is moral law reveals our need for a savior because moral law shows us how incapable of keeping the law we actually are. Moral law would be, it would transcend the Old Testament into the New Testament into today. Moral law would be things like thou shall not kill. Just for the record, as many times you felt like doing that to your spouse or your boss or your children at times, it's still a bad idea. It's still frowned upon, right? Like you should not kill your boss. You should not murder your husband, okay? Uh, no matter what he's done, no matter how many times he's left his socks on the floor, don't do it. It's a bad idea, okay? So here's the thing. <clears throat> That's moral law. It transcends because it's part of God's character and nature. And then there is ceremonial law. Ceremonial law is different because ceremonial law and it's interesting because when we look at this word ceremonial, um, the, the word in the Hebrew that's used to describe it is hakim. And hakim means literally custom of the nation. And these were, these were contextualized within the culture of Israel. And these were the laws that we see like don't mix two kinds of fabrics together. Um, don't braid two kinds of rope together. Those things you're like, why in the world was that there? And part of the reason that was there is when the law was given, uh, it was given to remind the people not to intermarry with unbelievers. Not to have you, some of you have heard the phrase, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And a lot of ceremonial law, it su supported this idea that, hey, you don't mix certain types of condiments or mints or things like this together as you are preparing food. And this was to reinforce the idea for the, uh, the Israelites that, hey, we are not supposed to intermarry with unbelievers. Now, that was cultural in context. There were a lot of different things we see that were cultural in context. So ceremonial law did things like um, it gave instructions for regaining right standing with God. So what do you do whenever you've fallen out of favor with God? Well, there's sacrifices. There's ceremonies to, to remedy your uncleanness. Uh, it would give instructions on that. It would offer remembrances for God's work in Israel. These are why they would do feasts and festivals. Um, there's specific regulations meant to distinguish Israelites from the pagan neighbors. This is the dietary and the clothing restrictions uh, because God was saying, you are not like other people, so you can't act like other people. And these were ceremonial in their purpose. And then there were signs that pointed to the coming Messiah. This was the Sabbath. This was circumcision. This was Passover. Um, the, just the, the redemption of the firstborn. All of these things were contextual to point people to Jesus. They were a reminder that a Messiah is coming to restore the nation. So there's a difference between moral and ceremonial. And what we see here in, in Romans is Paul saying, hey, we are still obliged to follow the moral law of God, but we are not obliged to follow the ceremonial law of God. We don't have to um, eat food that has only been prepared a certain way. We don't have to do that because there's freedom in Christ. We have liberty in Jesus Christ. So this is what he's talking about. Let me get to Romans chapter 14, verse eight. He says this, 
If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be the Lord, both of the living and the dead. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, here's our common ground. Our common ground is we live and die for the Lord. That the Lord is our North Star. That he is how we live our life. He's what we focus on. He's our purpose. And we can set aside everything else if we can just remember that what unites us is the Lord. He says in verse 10, so why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we all stand before judgment seat of God. For the scripture says, surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. He's saying, so don't, don't condemn somebody else. Don't judge them because they <laughs> sin differently than you do because they act differently than you do, because they have different views or values at times. Don't condemn them. We love them, that's what we do. Verse 12, <clears throat> yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Decide instead to live in such a way that you will live, <clears throat> that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. <clears throat> Purpose to live your life in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. So part of this is, um, is understanding that we don't just live for ourselves. Part of this is understanding that we live for the people around us as well, that our lives have impact, our lives have weight, and what we do impacts not just us, but the people we love. And Paul's saying, you have the ability to cause other people to stumble and fall. And you might say, well, Mel, it's not up to me how they live their lives. You just said, let them do what they do and you do what you do. Yeah, you don't condemn them, but you also don't help them in their sin either. So um, I've talked about this in the past, but I personally do not drink alcohol. I don't drink any alcohol. I don't have a glass of wine um, with dinner. I don't drink a beer when I'm watching a game. I just don't, I don't drink alcohol. Um, I don't believe scripture prohibits consumption of alcohol. I think the people who say that it does um, aren't really paying good attention to what the scripture says. Um, so I don't, I don't abstain from alcohol because I think the Bible prohibits it. I abstain from alcohol because I understand in the role I'm in and the place I'm in that it's probably better for me and better for the people around me if I abstain from alcohol. Because I know that there are eyes on me all the time. And if I go out and I have one glass of wine with dinner, um, it might not be a big deal for me. I have the liberty, I have the freedom to do that, but it might not be right for me to do that. Because what if there's somebody else and it's a sin? They think it's a sin for us to drink alcohol. Now they look at me and it's not just a reflection on me, it's a reflection on our church. It's a reflection on, on Christianity if, if we're not careful. And you might say, well, Mel, that's not your responsibility. Well, Paul says it is my responsibility. Now, I can't control everything someone else thinks about me, but I don't have to create my own problems either. <laughs> I tell our staff all the time, you're going to have enough problems without creating your own problems, so don't create your own problems. And this is an area that I could create my own problems in, that I could say, well, I've got the liberty to do this. I've got the freedom to do this, and if I'm not careful, it could get me into trouble. Am I saying nobody should drink alcohol? No, I'm not saying that. Scripture doesn't prohibit that. Scripture prohibits drunkenness. If you're drinking to excess, if you're drinking alcohol to mask a feeling or to comfort or to, if you're using it for those reasons, that's trouble. 
But is it a sin to drink? No, it's not. But I choose not to. Why? Because I don't want to cause someone else to stumble and fall. And this is the approach Paul's telling us to take, not just with alcohol, but with every area of our lives, that we should examine our lives and say, are there things that I do and things that I believe that could cause other people to stumble, that could cause someone else to to miss the mark, whether it's in your home or in your community, in your workplace. Paul says this is the standard for us. Verse 14, I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. And if another person is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Don't let your consumption ruin someone for whom Christ died. Don't let the things that you are doing, don't let the things that you are involved in ruin someone who Jesus loves. I don't play golf. Some of you are like, wait a second. You can mess with alcohol, don't you mess with golf. But let's just say I play golf. Um, golf, if you're good, four hours for a round of golf. Three and a half maybe if you're really good. For me, it's five hours. <laughs> five hours of my day away from my family especially when my girls were young, that's probably not a good way for me to spend my time. Five hours, right? But, but what if I really love it? What if it's an escape for me? What if it rejuvenates me? What if it's my me time and I just need it, Mel? You don't understand. Well, that's great. But if you are hurting your family because you're playing golf, I've got bad news for you. Playing golf might be a sin for you. And you're like, well, Mel, that's not fair. That's not anywhere in the Old Testament. I don't see that anywhere. That is correct. You do not see that anywhere in the Old Testament. But what Paul is doing, is he doing something similar to what Jesus did in in the Sermon on the Mount? See, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus raises the standard because he says, hey, you've heard it said that if you commit adultery, it's a sin. But I'm telling you, if you look at a woman with lustful intentions, you've already committed adultery. And you're like, wait a second, it's not just about what I do, it's about what I think? Jesus is like, yep. Because he understood this is the root of sin is what we think. And what Paul is saying is, hey, I'm raising the standard. It's not just about you sinning, it's about you causing others to sin. It's about you causing problems in their lives as well. You taking advantage of your Christian liberty to do what you want, what you have the right to do, but maybe it's not right to do it. So what he says is, if there's things you're doing that's causing other people to stumble, that's causing them problems, you need to stop doing it because now it's a sin. And so what we need to do is understand that our lives are linked to the people around us. That that, that what I do is not just about me, it's about the people around me in direct and indirect ways. That, That what I neglect in my life impacts the people around me. What I give attention to in my life impacts the people around me. But what he keeps coming back to, what Paul keeps coming back to is this idea that if we are willing to self-sacrifice, love people sacrificially, it is good for the body. It's good for the kingdom. And we see this in both Romans 12 and 13. In Romans 12, he talks about loving our enemies. In Romans 13, he talks about loving our neighbors. And Paul is giving us specific ways that we can love our neighbors and love the people around us. 
by sacrificing for them, by laying ourselves down, by saying, I love you more than I love me. And the evidence of that is, I'm gonna put you above me. There's things that I feel like I've got the freedom to do that I'm not gonna do. Not because it's sinful, but because I'm preferring you in this situation. There's a, uh, I've said this to the church before, but um, I would always pray three things over my girls when I would drop them off at school. Every, every day I would drop them off at school and I would pray these three things. I would pray, Lord, help them make wise choices, put others first and have healthy relationships. Because I thought if they could put wise have wise choices, put others first, and have healthy relationships, they're gonna do everything else pretty well. Like that solves a lot of problems. If they'll be wise, if they'll have good relationships, and if they'll be sacrificial in how they treat people. Um, and, and this is what Paul's saying. Hey, put others first in your life. Don't be so selfish. Love them more than you love you. Um, when when you go first, there's opportunity for relationship. When I go first, there's opportunity for conflict. I've never had somebody flip me off because I waved them in in traffic, right? <laughs> You're being too nice, jerk. Like they never do that, right? But I've had plenty of people do that when I didn't wave them in, when I just kept going, didn't act like they weren't there and just kept moving forward. I've had plenty of people give me the, the two finger salute, right? Why? Because... It caused conflict. I went first, it caused conflict. Think about this in your marriage. Think about this in your relationships. When you put others first, there's opportunity for relationship. When you put yourself first, there's opportunity for conflict. And Paul is mandating that as a church, we put others first, that we say, hey, I'm gonna love you even if it hurts me at times. Here's what he says. Verse 16, then you will not be criticized for something you believe is good for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what you eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. When we put God first, when we put others first, God will be glorified. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says this. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Let us aim for harmony in the church. I love this. If you look at the English Standard Version, it says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul says, here is what you do in the church. In a, in a divided congregation, here's what you do. You Pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Pursue it. I love this word pursue in the Greek. It's uh, dioko. And dioko means to run swiftly in order to catch a person or thing. Do you know what Paul's saying? He's saying as a church, do you know what you need to do? You need to run swiftly after unity. You need to run hard after unity. You need to work really hard to make sure you are unified. Is it easy to love people sacrificially? No, it's really hard. Do you know why? Because it doesn't come naturally. That's why marriage is hard. That's why having kids is hard because in a marriage, you see how selfish you are. When you have kids, you see how selfish you are. And it's hard to lay that stuff down. It's hard to do that in the context of a church. It's hard to do that in the context of a community. It's hard to do that but it's worth the effort. And Paul says, we run hard after unity. We make this our aim. We pursue it with everything we've got. I had somebody tell me a few years ago, 
<clears throat> they were unhappy with some of the things I was saying and not saying from the platform. And they, they said that I was too focused on unity. And I was a little offended by that, to be perfectly honest with you. Because I was like, if you think I'm too focused on unity, I don't think you've read the Bible. Because the Bible indicates unity is a really, really important thing. In fact, what we see is the gifts of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was poured out when they were unified. They were in one accord. They were together in one place with one mind, with one focus. Unity is what brings the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And they said, you're too focused on unity. And I didn't argue with them because it was a, it was a losing proposition. I would have done it just for me because <laughs> I was not going to win them back. I was just going to prove that they were wrong. And that was really tempting, to be honest with you. <laughs> but I didn't do it. But let me read a passage to you. This is from... This is from John chapter 17, high priestly prayer. This is what Jesus prayed um, before he was taken to the cross, okay? And I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but John 17 is his high priestly prayer. I would encourage you to go read it. This is what he says in verse 11. He's praying to God. He says, now I'm departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name and now protect them by the power of your name. Why? So that they will be united just as we are. Jesus' prayer for the church as he was leaving is that the church, not just our church, but the church, the churches who proclaim Jesus as Lord would be united together. No matter what the name is on their sign, that we would be united. That brothers and sisters across denominations would be united in one. And he says, this is my prayer, that they would be united just like you and I are united. It doesn't stop there. He mentions it in verse 21 and then in verse 22 and 23 of John 17, he prays this, I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Now here's the thing, let me stop here for a second. What unites people together, this isn't tricky. Jesus is praying it, he's revealing it to us. It's the glory of God. Do you know what brings division? When people stop seeing ministry happen and stop seeing God's glory show up. That's what brings division. You, you wanna get things right in a church? Get busy doing ministry. You're letting God's glory show up. And when that happens, it's amazing how unified people become. And what Jesus is saying is God's glory and us carrying the glory of God actually ushers in unity in our churches. Carrying the glory of God will usher in unity in your home. Carrying the glory of God will bring unity to your business. The glory of God will bring unity to our communities but we're not focused on that. We're focused on other things. And so what you and I have to do is understand that the glory of God is key for seeing unity in the body. He says in verse 23, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as you have loved me. And Jesus says the unity of the body will be evidence to unbelievers that number one, I came to planet earth, that Jesus was sent by God and that they are loved by God just as Jesus was loved by God. This sounds like unity might be a big deal to Jesus. This sounds like maybe unity should be a big deal to us as well. That maybe we should run hard after unity to foster an environment where the world will see that Jesus was real and that 
that we are loved by God. This is important. Romans chapter 14, verse 20 says this. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. Verse 22, you may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. Let me stop here for a second. Two things. Number one, um, if you've decided it's right, you've got to make sure the Bible says it's right. Because I've talked to people who are like, well, what's so wrong with me doing this? And it's like, well, the Bible says you shouldn't. And they say, well, but it feels so good. And I just, it just feels right. It's like, I don't care what your feelings say. I care what the word of God says. So Paul's not talking about the moral law, I mean, adultery, um, murder, fornication, you know, those kind of things. He's talking about, he's talking about the, the stuff that we go, uh, are you eating bacon? Okay. I don't eat bacon, but that's okay. Like that kind of stuff. If you decided it's okay, do it. It's okay. He's not talking about moral law, first thing. And the other thing is this. He said, <laughs> you may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep, it, uh, but keep it between yourself and God. Let me help you with this. If there's something you're doing that you don't want anybody else to know about, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. If you have to go to another county to do something, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. If you have to keep it a secret from your spouse or from your boss or from your, people, your friends at church, maybe you shouldn't be doing it, even if it's not explicitly spelled out in Scripture. Because you may have the right to do something, but it may not be right for you to do it. Verse 23. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you're not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you're sinning. Man, Paul just wraps this up and he doesn't get any lighter on the way, does he? He says, if you've got a doubt about whether what you're doing is right or wrong, it's wrong. You shouldn't do it. It's sin, so stop. Well, Mel, what's the problem? It's just, I mean, I'm, my marriage is fine, um, but it's just... That's this old girlfriend from high school. What, what could the harm be? I'm just going to message her on Facebook. Really? Oh, you don't understand. Uh, it's not like that. We're just friends. It's no big deal for me to message this person for me to... Really? If there's any doubt in your heart that it's wrong, it's wrong. It's sin. Well, no, I don't think it's any big deal for me to participate in this. For me to, the Bible doesn't say it's sin. Yeah, but is it going to cause somebody else to stumble? That's our mark. Is it going to cause disunity in your family? Is it going to cause disunity in the church? That's our standard. I got more I could preach, but we're out of time. I guess my question to you today is this. Are you willing to lay down your Christian liberty or freedom for the benefit of others? Are you willing to lay down things that maybe are not sinful, overtly, for the good of somebody else? Are you willing to stop doing a certain thing, stop going a certain place for the good of someone else? If not, then that's a problem. If not, that means you're probably one of the weak Christians that Paul was talking about at the beginning. 
We need to make changes. We need to let the Holy Spirit make some changes in us. This all comes back to knowing Christ, being one with him. It's what we talked about in John chapter 17 just a moment ago that Christ said, hey, I am one with you, God, and I want them to be one with us. And this is what he's praying for, that you would know him and know his goodness and know his power. And that's what transforms us. That's what changes us. So I wanna give you an opportunity to know Christ today, to surrender your life to him, to know how good it is to be his son or daughter, to, to, to walk in relationship with Jesus. It's a game changer. I wanna give you that chance. So if you would, bow your head and close your eyes all this place. Heavenly Father, I thank you for loving us so well. God, I thank you that even when we're a mess, even when we are selfish, you loved us. God, at our very worst, you sent Christ to die for us. So God, I pray that as we come to faith in you, as we begin to grow in our faith, Lord, we would not be complacent to the needs of the other people around us. That we would see that our lives are not just about us, but it's about the people around us as well, that we are living in community and the decisions I make or don't make are impacting the people around me. So God, I pray first of all for the people that are in this place, the people watching online who don't know you, that aren't in a relationship with you, let today be the day of full surrender. Let today be the day that we say yes to you and we experience all the good things you promised us in scripture. God, I pray for those that are here that maybe today they've recognized that they haven't loved sacrificially in some ways. Maybe it's with a spouse or a loved one. Maybe it's with the people in this congregation that they've been selfish in things they've said or done and maybe they've caused disunity. And God, I pray today you would work in their hearts, bring repentance. And God, I pray that from this moment forward, we would be people who would fight for the right things, that we would run hard after unity. God, minister in us in these next few moments, and I pray that you be glorified. Nobody's looking around with your head bowed and your eyes closed if you're here today. And you'd say to me, Mel, I'm, I recognize I'm not really serving God. I'm not really walking with Jesus, but I want to. I want to, I want to commit my life today to Christ. I want to surrender to him. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not gonna make you come forward. I just wanna pray for you. And if you're here and you wanna be included in that prayer, would you be bold enough to put your hand up real high where I can see it? And you can put it right back down. If you'd say, Mel, that's me, pray for me. Include me in that prayer. I wanna know Christ today. Yeah, thank you. I see you on my left. Who else would say, Mel, include me. Pray for me today. Yeah, I see you up there. Thanks, sir. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Who else? Just a few more seconds. You'd say, Mel, include me in that prayer. I wanna experience God. Yeah, I see you, ma'am. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I see you on the back, on my left. You can put your hand down. Praise the Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So we're gonna pray a prayer together and I'm gonna ask everybody in this room to pray this prayer with us. And I want you to say it out loud, but I want you to mean it from your heart. And this isn't just about a prayer we say one time, it's about this ongoing confession we make with our life. That, that throughout our lives, our lives and our words will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we're gonna pray this prayer together, but this is the beginning of a journey for us. So I want you to repeat this prayer after me, everyone in the room. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your only son, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. 
From this day forward, my life belongs to you. Use me for your glory. Use me to bring unity to my home and to my church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, Scripture says you're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So we wanna help you take the next step in your faith journey. So if you prayed that prayer, do one of two things. You can either text Summit PA to the number 94000, Summit PA to 94000, or you can take the card out of the seat back in front of you fill it out and then take it to our info center in the lobby when we get finished in a moment. They're going to give you a new Bible. They're going to help you take the next step. If you text us, uh, we're going to respond back to you and we're going to get some info in the mail to you. And then in the next few days, somebody from our team is going to reach out to you and help you take the next step. Pastor Kendall's going to lead us in one final song. We're going to worship one more time before we go today. And as we're singing this final song, some of our prayer team and some of our staff are going to be available here at the front of this room. And if you'd like prayer for any reason at all, no matter what it may be, please come find us. We would love to pray for you. Maybe you need physical healing in your body. Maybe you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe you're here today and you just need a miracle. We'd love to pray with you about whatever it may be. So please come find one of our teams. Let us know about it. We'd love to pray with you. Stand to your feet all over the room. We're going to worship one more time before we go today, guys. I love you more than you know, and I am so glad that I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Have an awesome day.